Okay, welcome back. <clears throat> Thanks for being here. Uh, last week we took a break because uh, we needed to talk about group process or really world process as it affects the individuals and us and um, thoughts about the future and the current conditions and um, <clears throat> I'm not going to speak politically on it. Uh, I think uh, <laughs> one should pray for discernment one should read widely, one should understand that experts commonly have a, an agenda to keep their positions and not look, make their organizations look bad, whatever they are, political or corporate and military and dot dot dot. So uh, it may well be aspects of a great deception in play now, for sure. So anyway, uh, today we're continuing with the discussion of Rahula Sutta, Rahula Sutta. This is uh, talk number 27, and um, this was the 11th Sutta of the second chapter of Sutta Nepata, which we're continuing, Rahula Sutta. And I want to um, use um, many of the sites um, that I presented last time to fill out uh, a deeper understanding of the core teachings Gautama gave to his son Rahula. And from the page Wisdom Lib or Lib definition of Rahula, down the page a bit, we see some presentation of the history of Gautama's teaching to his son. Second paragraph, um, this is a review and we'll take it to go deeper. Uh, when Rahula was seven years old, that's when his mother asked him to meet Gautama in Kapilavattu and asked for his inheritance, and Gautama ended up helping, <laughs> ordaining him as a monk and giving a big uh, novice monk at seven, and giving him Sariputta and Mahamogalana as his preceptors or his main mentors, which is uh, the best he could get. So, when Rahula was seven, the Buddha preached to him the Ambalatika Rahulovada Sutta as a warning he should never lie, even in fun. And that is the same as the link, the next link given from the book Buddha and His Disciples from Venerable S. Damika, where there's a, what I discovered is it's a very, um, radical <laughs> condensation of a few suttas into these paragraphs in, in, in an accurate way, but um, much detail um, excised or um, left out. And so this now goes from the teaching at seven, and this is important because, uh, you know, we're like seven years old too, meaning we're just... Um, certainly very um, in need or appreciating um, very elementary teaching. Uh, my, I used to play bass guitar um, in high school. I was learning, and the teacher said, if you can't play it slow, you can't play it fast. And so learn to play it slow so you'll be able to truly play it fast, the lines and the rhythm, whatever it is. Uh, playing, uh, learning to play it slow is um, doubling, redoubling one's um, seeking 
to know well the elementary teachings. Play it slow as know well, make sure you know well elementary teachings rather than jumping to advanced teaching. So in Buddhism, elementary teaching equals Four Noble Truths and the Three Poisons and the Three Marks and uh, the Two Views uh, and uh, the, the Three Realms, Triloka, which is cosmology and dimensions, and the Path. And um, the Ten Fetters particularly is useful because they correlate with the Four Stages of Awakening. And that's the path, and that's mm, the three fundaments, Shila, Samadhi, Prajna, um, that reveal breaking of the ten fetters along the path of the four levels of awakening, which comes from a deep understanding of the Four Noble Truths, which is, starts with Dukkha, and stress, distress, dissatisfactoriness. And so, akin to that kind of focus on the elementary and playing it slow, the value of looking again at Gautama's teaching to his son at age seven. And that's point eight, that's paragraph 89 on the page of Buddha and his disciples. And rather than read the whole, Gautama was first teaching about um, the harmfulness of lying, saying, um, thrown away is the training of those who have no shame at intentional lying. So it's not a matter of just um, that all lies are the same. There's intentional lying and then shame at intentional lying. He didn't say that the problem was lying, nor even the problem being intentional lying. The problem meaning what really gets one <laughs> in trouble down the line or in the future. It wasn't per se, lying, nor intentional lying, but having no shame at intentional lying. No shame at intentional lying means no regret, no remorse. It means I know I intentionally lied because it was intentional, right? Conscious. And I don't care. <laughs> That's intentional lying without shame. Shameless intentional lying. That's the problem. Shameless intentional lying. Lying, we do sometimes, um, and it may be uh, minor, Right? I just don't want to explain it. If I think you can't understand it, or I think you're going to get super upset, which is unjustified, uh, I may tell so-called white lie. It's a lie. It's intentional. But I know I just told a intentional minor lie, or I didn't say something. Um, I wish I didn't have to, or I didn't... I mean, one doesn't really have to, you say. One could tell the truth and the other person gets totally upset and misinterprets and a big scene happens and a big mess happens. Okay, um, That's the highest road, I think, and yet that might be the end of a relationship or a marriage or a partnership. <laughs> Is that worth it? Um, perhaps not, actually. And so there may be a determination by however much wisdom we have in the moment that some kind of a minor so-called white lie we feel is necessary. It's not essentially necessary. It's necessary for a certain purpose, like uh, don't break up this relationship or don't don't have you send yourself into hysteria. Right? I know you'll become hysterical if I tell the truth, and I think it's not a big deal, so I intend not to tell the truth. That's an intentional lie. It could be called white. Um, 
the shame portion is the regret that I did or that I felt I had to. Um, that's healthy, I think. And the best, of course, is if the relationship can be moved to the point where we can be totally honest about everything. But you know, most people don't want total honesty, and that's another matter. <laughs> uh, being totally honest with somebody who doesn't want total honesty is unwise. So anyway, this is an early teaching. But, <laughs> and so the importance of shame. Shame doesn't mean I hate myself or I think I'm a shithead forever. It just means I wish I didn't do it or I didn't have to do it. I, maybe I would do it again. Because if I believe from experience that telling a certain truth leads the other person into their own hysteria, they didn't do it. I didn't make you hysterical. But I know that if I tell this minor truth, you'll go into hysteria. Or we have a lovely relationship and you'll break it up because you can't handle this truth. Then I might intentionally lie. Uh, and then the other person, you know, <laughs> may be okay in the long run. Uh, I wouldn't say that's clearly the best way, but it is obviously what we do sometimes. Knowing that having some regret that that whole thing happened, I think, is healthy and, and useful. Uh, and so this was teaching. Um, his son the importance of telling the truth. The second portion of this paragraph 89 about his teaching at age 7 is acting with body, speech, and mind only after first looking at oneself, the analogy of a mirror. purpose of a mirror is to look at yourself and likewise <laughs> the training is to look at yourself. Therefore, Rahola, you should train yourself thinking we'll only act after repeatedly looking at ourselves only after reflecting on ourselves. So, self-reflection. And this comes from the next link, which is um, Ambalatika Rahulo Vada Sutta, which originally, you know, it's interesting, Tanasaro Bhikkhu is a good guy, but he's watered things down in the updated version on Dhamma Talks. So, on Dhamma Talks, this Ambalatika Rahulo Vada um, actually not in this case, but in some other cases, um, he took out the poly because it's easier for some people. But actually, if you really want to know, go deep, you need the poly because you need to look at the ultimate, the alternate translations of each of the words in the Sutta title and in the text of the Sutta. Anyway, this is actually instructions to Rahula at Mango Stone. Mango Stone was a place, I guess, it was a big stone near some mango, near a mango grove. And that's nice. It's good to know that, I think. So, this sutta is apparently, as far as I understand, and I may be totally mistaken, the sutta that came out of Gautama's teaching to his son at age seven, which was against lying and um, exhorting his son to... Um, self-reflection before speech, before um, behavior, speech, uh, uh, and thought, even. So, guarding oneself in mind, thought, uh, thought, word, and deed. In one's thinking mental, in one's speaking verbal, in one's action behavioral. And the, the, the uh, money shot, <laughs> which is a weird phrase, uh, that's in this sutta, is uh, training day and night in skillful mental qualities. That's really what Buddhism is all about. 
I mean, yes, it it gets into the metaphysical and the magical. Yes, there's bliss in high states and jhanas and meditation. Yes, there's a moral code, sila samadhi prajna, right? Sila morality, like panchashila, don't do harm. And then going to samadhi with meditation, and concentration, and equanimity, and prajna, wisdom, discernment, as well as insight and realization of the goal. Uh, starting all in Shila morality, uh, this is uh, this uh, sutta here, Ambalatika Rahulavada, uh, shows the um, meticulousness of the of the core Buddhist teaching and the core Buddha Dhamma, or the Buddha way, the Buddhist way, Gautama's teaching training in skillful night training day and night in skillful mental qualities i mean that's really a piece of work and one can clearly get into trouble if it's done in a distorted or imbalanced way and yet and yet that is the antidote to on to doing harm with thought word and deed uh, what is what leads to bind bondage, what leads to dukkha, what might lead to uh, rebirth in hell or as a hungry ghost, what leads to 3D repeating, what leads to relationship conflict, what leads to physical illness and injury and bad karmic seeding, is um, um, prevented. <laughs> is, uh, this is a prophylaxis, prophylaxis or um, a, uh, an antidote to doing harm in thought, word, and deed. And all that is harmful is preventable by this training day and night in skillful mental qualities. And it's it's a training beyond me. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a perfect monk. I'm not a monk at all. <laughs> I just love this, and I know it's true. And um, uh, I don't always walk to the Pole Star or Polaris, but I know where it is, and I know that it's the goal, and that's enough. And I'll keep coming back to walking the path towards it, even if I take a break, periodically or regularly. But the heart of this, the heart, a pith teaching of Buddha Dhamma totally, in the totality, is training day and night in skillful mental qualities. That's the way that one doesn't do harm, that's the way that Shila goes to Samadhi and Prajna. That's the way that one is preventing, prevents oneself from doing any harm and getting stuck. And um, uh, this is how high Buddhism is as a psycho-spiritual, moral, metaphysical system of self-transformation. Psycho-spiritual, very psychological. Very spiritual, metaphysical. No problem, higher dimensions and devas popping in and out and cities and magical powers. Uh, but it's a moral system. And it's very demanding. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the requirement, the, the ideal of the monk is basically excellence in all ways. I mean, stately, noble excellence in personal cultivation. Excellence in all qualities of mind, uh, speech, and action that's the goal or that's at least associated that it's not quite necessary actually for nirvana i think 
meaning um, it, it's a funny kind of thing. Some people, it's it's not like everybody who hits nirvana is a Buddha at all. They're arhats, um, and so there's some there, there's sufficient seven chakra development to leave the octave. Is that total perfection of seven chakras? I guess so. Is it total perfection of all potential development in the octave? No, I don't think so. Like perfection of speech and teaching and like uh, people leave the octave not looking like Nityananda. That's what I'm saying. But the root of how how meticulous Gautama's teaching Buddha Dhamma really is in Buddhism is this point, training day and night and skillful mental qualities. And from this uh, Ambala Tika Rahulavada Sutta, uh, after the discussion of lying comes this discussion of um, uh, the importance of self-reflection. And so uh, he says, in, Gautama says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily actions, verbal actions, mental actions are to be done with repeated reflection. And it goes to all three, body, verbal, mental, or uh, behavior, speech, and thought. Whenever you want to do a bodily action or verbal action, or mental thought <laughs> before you think you should reflect on your thought hmm. this bodily action or verbal or mental that I want to do will it or won't it will it lead to self-affliction or affliction of others or both very straightforward right uh, will it hurt me or you or both would it be an unskillful bodily action or verbal or mental with painful, painful consequences, painful results, to you or me, or both. If on reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, or to the affliction of others, or to both, then it would be unskillful bodily action, or mental, or verbal, with painful consequences, painful results, then any bodily action, or speech, or behavior of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do, is the teaching. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction to you or the other or both, then it would be a skillful bodily action or verbal or behavioral with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then any bodily action or verbal or behavioral of that sort is fit for you to do. That, that's a pretty <laughs> rigorous self-training. Training day and night and skillful mental qualities the mental quality particularly is reflection and the willingness to re feel regret and remorse when we did what's called unskillful bodily action, verbal action, mental action. I got caught in that way of thinking and that obsession. I got caught in an obsessive pattern. I got caught in avoidance in my mind or defense mechanisms I projected. You're bad when actually I feel upset at myself. So acknowledging when we're caught in mental distortion. It won't commonly, commonly, it won't happen before we get, we fall down. It's normally people realize, oh, I'm falling into a pit here. Oh, oh, I've, <laughs> I'm unwell. Um, oh, I was self-deceiving. I was emotionally avoidant. I was emotionally controlling. I was, I spoke too harshly. I didn't speak enough. Um, I was misleading. I was uh, deceptive. <laughs> I was manipulative. Uh, or I uh, hurt you by walking away too soon. 
or I uh, had a sour face when actually you didn't deserve it. Dot, 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 dot. And so, normally, um, the training day and night in skillful mental qualities comes after we realize that we did something unskillful in terms of behavior or speech or ways of mind. We got caught in a, in a psychological uh, distortion, mental, you know, I, I hated myself for 10 years, or I uh, rejected um, what I ought to have appreciated, or I appreciated what I ought to have rejected. <laughs> I followed a stupid teacher because I was dumb, or something like that. It's good to cut through bullshit, you know. And so, normally, we <laughs> we are spotty, spotty training day and night, periodically, in skillful mental qualities, comes after we acknowledge or fall or find ourselves have, have made trouble for self or other or both by action, behavior, and speech, and alone by thought. But... <clears throat> This is a, and, and I was thinking on this um, in the last few days, one could use a centered, uh, dual, polar, moral scale. Centered meaning there's a zero, neutral, and it's dual meaning, dual, dual, dual polarity meaning good and bad, right? This action is good, meaning it will cause, uh, it's likely to lead to pleasant circumstance or something good for you and me, for you or for me or for both. That's the positive valence. The negative is it's likely to cause harm to you or me or both. And there's, uh, you can say, a seven-point scale. <laughs> Not that one should have to resort to this every time one thinks or acts or speaks, but one can evaluate uh, thought, word, and deed, way, one's way of mind and one's speech and one's behavior that had been done or is possible to do or can be considered for activity. Uh, three positive and three negative with zero and neutral in the middle, like the seven chakras, right? So there's really excellently positive, there's moderately positive, and there's slightly positive, and then there's zero neutral, and then there's moderately, lightly harmful, somewhat, uh, moderately, truly harmful, and really harmful. So plus one, plus two, plus three, minus one, minus one, minus two, minus three, and zero in the middle. Not that you should do that, but my mind thought that. And, um, but that's true, <laughs> that one can evaluate before thought, word, and deed, or after thought, word, and deed, how it's moral evaluation, it's moral self-reflection. The moral evaluation upon self-reflection of activity that, activity in body, speech, and mind, thought, and speech, and physical behavior, that could be seen to be anywhere from extremely positive to extremely negative in its consequences, to self and other. Personally, I've always felt there's no value to relationship for me unless either you're helping me or I'm helping you or both. If I'm helping you and it doesn't help me, that might be good. If you're helping me and doesn't help you but somehow you're okay with it, that might be good. 
But if it doesn't help you and it doesn't help me, why am I here? Why am I here? <laughs> if it doesn't help you, it doesn't help me. Then there's karmic responsibility, which is being with people that we'd rather not be with, but um, they can't help us. We may be not even able to help them. Uh, but for some reason, there seems to be a karmic obligation to remain uh, for a while. But in general, um, th this is... Um, while a teaching to seven-year-old Rahula, it's a critical teaching at least to remain aware of that. Uh, in many cases, it's very important to reflect, think before you leap, look before you leap, uh, reflect before you act. And if it can't be done before, at least it can be done after. And it's the willingness to feel shame at intentional lying, the willingness to feel shame at um, unskillful action, which is unskillful because it leads to uh, pain or trouble for you or me or both in the future. And then there's all sorts of activity that's quite morally neutral or a little good or bad. Should I have, uh, you know, baked potato or French fries? <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe baked potato is more healthy, but maybe you feel like french fries, and maybe that's fine. Is that neutral? It might be positive, but it's a plus one, not a plus three. Uh, meaning, there's all sorts of decision that we don't need to think about too much because it's so minor. It's either a plus or a minus, but, yeah, sure. If you're allergic to the oil they're cooking, the frying the potatoes in for your french fries, then you better well take the baked potato instead of the french fries and you better well know it or you ought to or then after it happened you got sick you might think hmm why did i get sick i guess i ought to have taken the baked potato so but i'm saying this kind of thing is um is how we self-correct it's how we it's not enough to get high you know <laughs> it's not enough to activate six chakra ross said in and of itself six chakra activation like samadhi doesn't in and of itself per se clear lower triad blockages. One has to direct the fruits of meditation, meaning equanimity and clarity, to one's own body, mind, spirit, towards one's own mind. And even the notion of verbal action and physical action, the assessment is um, mental training, meaning it's a mental training um, <clears throat> to get a handle on how uh, on the moral value to self and other of uh, body speech and mind activity of activity in body deeds and speech and uh, even ways of thinking its effect on self and other uh, that kind of reflection is um, moral self-evaluation that's an application at best of the clarity of mind and discernment from fifth and sixth chakra activation and meditation, as an example, to potential lower triad blockages, meaning my stuff. Very important. And one should admit, you know, I was wrong. And that's all. Okay, I was wrong. Doesn't mean I'm terrible, it just means I was wrong. Or I made this pain. Doesn't mean I'm evil, I just made this pain. <laughs> because I wasn't wise and loving, love, love wisdom, enough to not do so. But I made the seed, and here's the fruit, and it's a bitter fruit. And um, I take total responsibility for my portion, which is generally <laughs> total. Uh, 
and um, I'm not, I don't hate myself either. That's called forgiveness. It's very doable. And, and so, when one realizes that it was, or that it's likely to be a skillful, or harmless, or positive, and morally, morally uh, acceptable body action, decision action, physical, and speech, and thought pattern, with pleasant consequences, pleasant results, then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful. I don't know if you can stay mentally refreshed and joyful. Training day and night and skillful mental qualities. So that's the takeaway, <laughs> without beating it too hard, of Ambalatika Rahula Vada, uh, instructions to Rahula at the Mango Stone, is that um, training, uh, training day and night, <laughs> or being willing to self-train in self-reflection. And that really means assessment before and assessment after um, of one's of, of our activity in um, how we live this life and how we speak and even our ways of thought. Now, when we swing back to, to paragraph 90 on the same page, Buddha and his disciples, we're not even in the sutta yet. We're just looking at the other suttas that were presented. Uh, this uh, other training as when when Rahula was 18. Rahula trained in the Ten Precepts of Monastic Discipline when he was 18. Buddha decided he was ready for meditation, gave him advice on how to practice. This is this paragraph is also critical and um, it's associated um, there's there, there's another Rahula Vada Sutta and so, paragraph 90 in that page, uh, Buddha and his disciples, paragraph 90 comes, uh, it seems to come from the Maha Rahulavada Sutta, while paragraph, well, <laughs> the prior training, or paragraph 89, talking about um, the, the danger in intentional lying or shameless intentional lying, and reflection on body, mind, speech, and activity before we do it and after. That comes from the Ambalatika Rahulavada Sutta. So anyway, you've got multiple suttas which represent to, to Rahula, to Rahula, multiple suttas. The first one was when he was seven, or at least this sutta um, Ambalatika is when he was seven. And then you've got the Maha Rahulavada. So you've got two, Ambalatika Rahulavada, and you've got Maha Rahulavada when he was 18. Uh, both of them are foundational <laughs> teaching for us, for anyone in the, the Buddhist path. And this second one, uh, the mm, what seems to be the Maha Rahulavada Sutta, which is not the Rahula Sutta. So you've got three of them, right? Ambalatika at age seven, Maha Rahulavada at age 18, and then <laughs> uh, down that page of the Wisdom Lib, it actually indicates that um, uh, some, some commentary says that the Buddha constantly preached the Rahula Sutta, which is the later one where we started from, Samutta, from the uh, Sutta Nipata. <laughs> that 
Rahula Sutta was preached constantly to Rahula after um, age 18 or something like that. So you've got three of them, age 7, age 18, and then that which Gautama preached continually or regularly. And each one um, gives very um, critical, foundational um, points, pointers to establishing one on the path and taking the path to the end. And that second, uh, Maha Rahulavada, as uh, perhaps <laughs> shown by point paragraph 90 in the book Buddha and His Disciples, is particularly about developing a mind like the four great elements. And that's very interesting also. And I'll read it again without going into that, the Sutta fully. This is a synopsis. Uh, I said it last week, but I think it's worth looking into again. And I really will finish Rahula Sutta today. But the other, these other two suttas are very interesting. So, uh, from Buddha and his disciples, paragraph 90 here about Rahula, which seems to be a synopsis of the Maha Rahulavada Sutta. Rahula, this is Gautama's teaching, Rahula, develop a mind that is like the four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, because if you do this, pleasant or unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen and taken hold of the mind will not persist. So we're talking about an antidote to um, becoming overrun with both pleasant and unpleasant sensory experience. What I like, what I don't like, what feels good, what feels bad not letting those swamp the mind or lead the mind to swamping in thought and confusion and desire, aversion, ignorance. Um, just as when it goes on, just as when people throw feces, urine, spittle, pus or blood on the earth or in the water, in a fire or the air, the earth, the water, the fire or the air is not troubled or worried or disturbed. So to develop a mind like the four great elements. Then, as I said, there's a presentation of the four Brahma Viharas, and what each of them represents, what each of them cures, each of the four Brahma Viharas as antidotes to particular ashravas or fetters, uh, not particularly fetters, but defilements, uh, unskillful mental states, unskillful mental tendencies, unskillful mental conditions each of the four Brahma-viharas as a cure or antidote to a particular complex of unskillful or uh, distorted mental process. Um, and he says, develop love, which is metta, <laughs> Rahula, for by doing so, ill will, meaning aversion or hatred or loathing, will be got rid of. So metta, which is loving-kindness or friendliness, uh, getting rid of ill will. Then, develop compassion, meaning um, karuna. For by doing so, the desire to harm will be got rid of. Desire to harm is not the same as ill will. Develop sympathetic joy, uh, mudita, um, which also means uh, I'm happy when you're happy. For by doing so, dislike will be got rid of. Also, I would say envy and jealousy. Then, develop equanimity, the fourth, upekka, upeksha. For by doing so, sensory reaction will be got rid of. Oh, so back to the mind like the four great elements, 
earth, water, fire, air, that uh, <clears throat> acts to um, prevent the mind from letting <laughs> pleasant and unpleasant sensory impressions take hold, take hold of the mind. That, that uh, antidote <clears throat> to sensory overload, it's not really sensory overload, it's sensory, sensation-based um, mental, um, mental disturbance, mental um, congestion, mental turbidity, humidity, a humid mind, <laughs> a congested mind, a proliferating, over-proliferating thought mind, um, uh, monkey mind, yeah, monkey mind too, right? Monkey mind is over-proliferation of thought. Foggy mind, humid mind, congested mind, constipated mind is also um, a secondary ignorance, meaning um, grasping, aversion, ignorance, three poisons, the third, ignorance, avidya, uh, as the basis of that kind of turbid, congested, foggy, confused mind. Um, that is the result of <laughs> ultimately letting uh, pleasant or unpleasant sensory impressions take hold of the mind, in a sense. <clears throat> it's an avoidance of facing the, the, the stuck, foggy mind, or the foggy mind, congested mind, is a mind that has uh, suppressed its response to sensory and unsensory impressions and shut down. It's a shutdown mind, actually. So you have the excessive monkey, excessive thinking, proliferation of thought monkey mind, and you have the shutdown, congested, turbid, congested, humid mind that can't think clearly. Both represent an unskillful response to pleasant and unpleasant sensory impressions that have arisen. And <laughs> the antidote to that is equanimity. Uh-huh. Very deep. Very deep. And so the fourth of the Brahma-viharas, which is in some ways, I think, the, the summit, one, two, three, four, as a sequence, or the four uh, understood sequentially, that's one way to understand the four. You can see it as a mandala, you can see it as a sequence. As a sequence, the capstone is, is upeka, or equanimity. And that stops um, the unskillful response to both pleasant and unpleasant sensory impressions uh, arising in the mind. <laughs> Heavy duty. And that's how one can be free of overreaction, like the monkey mind, and suppressed response, which leads to a foggy, congested, constipated mind. And that's very common. <laughs> you know, a lot of people cannot think much. You've got to push forward to be able to think clearly. Speak it, say it. Speak, speak, said Lin Chi. Monks say, you know, what is the, what is the cardinal principle of the Buddha Dharma? Right, we're talking Sanskrit here. So Buddha Dharma, it's actually Sanskrit, Chinese, and he would say, uh, <laughs> uh, the tree on the mountainside, uh, and say, uh, do you know? And the monk would hesitate, and Lin Chi would grab him by the collar and say, speak, speak! And he'd be like, oh, 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 and Lin Chi would just throw him down or push him away, and that was the end of the encounter. 
So it's very helpful to speak it out and talk, even though one reveals one's ignorance and confusion. That's better than keeping it in, in many cases. It depends, right? But in the right case, when the person's receptive and the, the situation is um, non-harm, non harm, non uh, aggressive, the other person wants to listen. It's good to get it out to speak. Uh, depends on what you're saying. <laughs> but in many cases, the only way to clear a congested, turbid, um, foggy mind is by speaking, which reveals clearly the depths of one's ignorance and confusion and um, misunderstanding. And that's great <laughs> if you don't uh, hate yourself and you don't have somebody with you who blames you and judges you, because that's the way to clarity. So, but this point that uh, the fourth Brahmavihara equanimity is that which prevents. Um, unskillful mental response to both pleasant and unpleasant sensory experience uh, is a very important point. <laughs> then, <laughs> the other teaching here uh, is develop perception of the foul, which means appreciate disgustingness. For by doing so, attachment will be got rid of, right? So if you see uh, a beautiful woman, if, if you see uh, gore, gore.com, or uh, there's some this best gore. Hey, hey, bestgore.com. It's I've never dared to go there, but it's all sorts of gore, um, which is uh, freely available. No warning, I guess. I guess that's uh, better than pornography, or accepted by human leadership. Uh, if you see something disgusting like that, it takes down the um, tendency to cherish the beautiful form, strength, and attachment, and um, get stuck in desire and um, hunger, thirsting and craving for more good, 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 gimme, gimme, uh, by a uh, judicious uh, uh, observation of the disgusting and the horrible. I don't re quite recommend going to that website or anything, but um, that's the antidote for attachment to some degree. Grasping, aversion, ignorance, the first is uh, grasping which uh, is associated with attachment, which is, you know, upadana, clinging, um, but all sorts of clinging um, to, the, to the lovely or pleasant, coming out of pleasant sensation, right? A beautiful sight or smell or taste or feeling. Um, again, perception of the foul, like uh, charnel ground meditation, um, is <laughs> advanced teaching. And uh, one should not do that uh, untutored. But that's the antidote for attachment or hungering for the beautiful. Then develop perception of impermanence, Anicca. For by doing so, conceit, I am, will be got rid of. Bing, 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 the linkage between Anicca and Anatta. When you really know Anicca, you will know Anatta. And if you don't know Anatta, it's because you don't know Anicca enough. You don't know impermanence, transitoriness, changeableness. Uh, if you don't know Anicca, you can't know Anatta. And uh, teachers who keep using the word ego, clearly they don't understand Anatta. Clearly they don't understand Anicca, impermanence, enough, seems to me. Uh, but that's, you know, many times uh, there's a discussion of Anicca in the talking of the three Marks three characteristics: anicca, dukkha, impermanence, 
insubstantiality or no self and tukka or stress or dissatisfactoriness there's an emphasis on impermanence and tukka like <laughs> perception of the foul is a is a respectful long consideration of tukka essentially or how the beautiful becomes disgusting or the fact that there's a lot of nastiness around and um that's very much of dukkha and uh, perception of, ini- of impermanence obviously is anicca and <clears throat> uh, that's because why is there this what I've seen at least an emphasis on discussion of dukkha the first noble truth and impermanence which is ultimately anicca you know which is ultimately the basis of dukkha why not so much on anatta because first of all anatta being no self ah, on atta an Atman, no Atman, no self, no substantiality of fixed permanent identity. Um, that is less discussed because its realization is the result of a deep understanding of Anicca. Develop perception of impermanence, for by doing so, the conceit, I am, will be got rid of, and any notion of any, any cheerful usage of the term uh, ego, which Ra rejects as well. Um, any cheerful usage will be dropped as well. Because one realizes it's not helpful to put a head on top of my head or um, conceive of a fixed selfhood mentally. What I is, is transconceptual, is beyond mental conception, conception, conceiving. It's inconceivable. Yeah, right. Identity is inconceivable. Of course, true identity is inconceivable. And all conception is <laughs> is uh, is form, is uh, emptiness, <laughs> or is illusory. It's mayik, it's maya. And so, anyway, this is a very important point. Mm, the depth of understanding impermanence leads to the depth of of knowing anatta, the conceit I am. Eighth fetter is weakened. Then, finally, develop mindfulness of breathing for it's of great benefit and advantage. That's anapanasati. And and that's the point, is that anapanasati, or meditation, vipassana, sati, mindfulness meditation, is not for the purpose of getting to the jhanas and getting high. It's actually for the purpose of release, and um, a purification of mind at deep levels, um, and um, establishing the mind in a way that it can uh, remain in equanimity and can do extended self-training of watching one's mind, training oneself in skillful mental qualities, watching, uh, uh, considering thought, word, and deed before and during and after, to consider, has it been harmful for me or you or both or not? Has it been helpful to me or you or helpful for both? That type of moral evaluation of thought, word, and deed before, during, and after, <laughs> thought, word, indeed, um, is facilitated by meditation, which facilitates equanimity, which facilitates mental clarity, which allows one to do that kind of reflection or even realize that it's valuable. So, uh, with that said, and the other point, see the knock, this is a high density today. Um, the other point is that the four great elements relate to have an have a, in, a cor, uh, internal in, internal correlation. 
uh, commonly, Earth is the lowest. They certainly relate to the first four chakras. Uh, earth, s- solidity, stability. Water, fluidity, and dissolution. Fire, combustibility, and um, what I would call is a phase change. And air as a vibratory, um, vibratory uh, influence or vibratory um, effect, you know, vibration. And by the way, it is true that when the wind blows the trees, the leaves are very happy. The, the leaves of the trees and the branches and the boughs are happy to uh, wave in the wind. It's true. And um, Jimi Hendrix said, the, the wind cries merry. Um, I would say, uh, the ether sings glory. And what do you think is wind, right? It's not the stuff in the air. That's not air. What's, what air is, what wind is, is a perturbation of electromagnetism. It's a vibrating of the planetary logos, or the planet. It's the planet uh, vibrating. And in the material world, it comes out as that which blows um, as wind. And it's a, it's a kind of stroking of the logos to the planet. It's a kind of caress. The, the <laughs> not the wind cries merry. <laughs> the ether um, strokes. Um, it, it's God's caress, the wind, by the way. Anyway, um, earth is an antidote for fire. Excessive fire is stable. Actually, I'm sorry. Earth uh, for air and water for fire. And the Greek conception, alchemical conception of the four elements, understands this as well. That um, earth relates to air and fire relates to water. So that excessive earth is uh, prevented by air. Excessive air is calmed down by earth. Chinese medicine knows that. Excessive water is reduced by fire, and excessive fire is reduced by water. And so the four great elements, when well achieved, meaning uh, I can do earth and water, you know, earth, wind, and fire, right? Uh, Not only. (laughs) That's a good group, but this is a little different. I can do earth and water and fire and air means um, one knows the qualities of mind associated with each of the elements and how to move back to balance when there's an excess, when there can be understood to be an excess of one or another. Excess of earth means you're too stuck or sloth and torpor. Get going with air and a bit of fire. An excess of water um, you got to basically uh, get rid of it by fire or will or mind. An excess of earth as physical attachment to physical immobility. Attach, uh, excess water as an attachment to emotional process or over-emotional emotional process, emotionalism. Attachment to emotionalism. The hysteric, the drama queens and kings. Uh, this is excess water. Uh, counteracted by fire, particularly fire and, and earth. Uh, and then there's the, <laughs> the mother-child relation of the five elements in Chinese medicine. Yeah, right. There's a, absolutely, the mother gives rise to the child, and then there's a feedback. And so you can see that with the four, with the four element theory as well. 
and so water, excess water, um, is cured or treated by uh, the elements surrounding it, earth and fire, X, which is emotionality and emotionalism, and fire is thought. And I can't get into it, but <laughs> the other sutta that I put out here is um, Adita Pariyata, uh, Adita Pariyaya, or Adita Parijaya. That's probably Sanskrit, and Nepali is Adita Parijaya. Fire sermon, very important sermon. And basically, this is a deeper understanding of um, um, a Buddhist ontology. Buddhist ontology is the nature of being according to Buddhism, Buddha Dharma, Katama. And basically, <laughs> the, the statement, the, there are two translations. One is Jnana, Jnana Moli Terra, which I think is probably the better. And then Tanisaro, which um, he called it a flame. And um, Jnana Moli calls the fire sermon. Sutta is not a sermon. It's a what? Uh, teaching? But anyway, when I was trying to understand what is fire and how does fire, how is, how is a mind like the, for the, the great element of fire useful? Um, I thought, well, mind is akin to fire. Mind is burning. And I googled, mind is burning, and what do I find? Well, I find Adita Pariyaya Sutta, fire sermon translated by Nyanamoli Tara. And the second line is, because all is burning. And then Gautama goes through all the all the sense organs, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, and mind, the six, the five physical senses, and um, what they perceive. Eye, eye perceives form, ear sound, nose odor, tongue flavor, body tangibles, and mind ideas, or thought, or samskara, really. All is burning. <laughs> the whole thing is burning. And that's why Gautama talked about the burning house. And um, he's basically uh, helping people get out of the burning house. Mind particularly is burning. And all of our experience is ultimately mind-based. We only have an experience of body and spirit. Or some idea that there's a physical body and a physical world. And something called higher self or non-physicality by way of mind. And so mind is mind is Buddha, some said. Mind is empty, true. There is no mind, mind is Buddha, so true, same. There is no mind, mind is Buddha. There is no Buddha, hmm. And that's how Mahayana got into trouble. But this sutta, <laughs> everything's burning, monks. Break all is burning. What's burning? All the constituents of mental process, the five physical senses and what they perceive, so I and its forms that it's seeing and its consciousness and its contact, whatever is pleasant or unpleasant, whatever is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, what arises with eye contact, everything's burning. Burning, burning, burning. Burning with what? Burning with lust, hate, and delusion, meaning the three poisons. I say, he said, it's burning with birth, aging, and death, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, despair. So that's why Buddhism called pessimistic. Gautama said, it's all burning. All the sense organs and their objects of perception and the consciousness of the sense organs and the mind. All burning, burning. Burning with what? Burning with ignorance. <laughs> burning with um, the 
unpurified uh, tendencies of a non-enlightened person, person associated with desire, aversion, and ignorance, basically. And it's all impermanent, and it all comes and goes. And then down the line, in that, um, in the sutta, uh, adita pariyaya, or jaya, mind is burning. Ideas are burning. Burning, um, certainly impermanent, certainly insubstantial, certainly there's always some kind of stress to it. Um, it may not be screaming misery, but it's um, unstable. And the antidote to that is translated as estrangement by uh, Nyanamoli, which is, I think, not helpful. Um, I'm going to be. Uh, I'm going to be. He finds estrangement. Estrangement in eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. Well, I think that's weird. But uh, and then we go to Tanasaro, who instead of saying mind is burning, he wrote intellect is a flame. And so I think mind is burning sounds better than intellect is a flame. But Tanasaro, instead of saying estrangement, <laughs> he finds estrangement in the mind. Translated by Nyanamoli, translated by Tanasaro, is he grows disenchanted with the intellect, disenchanted with ideas, disenchanted with intellect consciousness, intellect contact, disenchanted with um, sensory experience and the mind itself. Disenchanted is this passion, is vairagya, is uh, disinterest. And that's actually one of the byproducts of samadhi and upekka, or equanimity, um, is um, the attachment to wanting and hating, or pushing and pulling, is weakened. There's less interest in pushing and pulling, pulling in and pushing away. Um, there's a basic disenchantment, and one is less enchanted one is less intoxicated or fascinated. And so, rather than say estrangement in the mind, he finds estrangement in the mind. How strange. More so, Tanisaro's translation, he grows disenchanted with the mind. Disenchanted with your own mind. <laughs> Disinterested in your own mind. Hmm, that's interesting. So that's, anyway, related to fire element, which just so happens to be most helpful with intellect, and reason and logic and analysis to counteract excessive water or emotionalism. And air, likewise, has some value in um, reducing excessive physicality or sloth and torpor or um, stubbornness, <laughs> which is excessive earth element. So one can do all sorts of interesting thought reflections on the nature of the four elements as they pertain to consciousness, and how, what an excess or deficiency in each might be, and how to handle excess or treat or uh, work with excess and or deficiency of the mind correlates of the four elements. Uh, and so, with a proper <laughs> uh, four elemental um, uh, learning, <laughs> where the mind can be harmonious in tendencies that are akin to the four elements, one can uh, be less spun and make less trouble for oneself and other when we um, encounter what's pleasant and unpleasant, 
what we consider pleasant unpleasant and so very deep stuff <clears throat> and then <laughs> we can get to the Rahula Sutta if you'd like and so Rahula Sutta <clears throat> from uh, Sutta Nipata where we started and I'll just read it through and very briefly and then we'll close it for the day uh, translated by Tanisaro from living with him often do you not despise the wise man is the one who holds up the torch for human beings honored by you from living with him often I don't despise the wise man this is Rahula answering the question the one who holds up the torch for human beings is honored by me so he respects his father and also great teacher and teaching going on abandoning the five strings of sensuality endearing charming going forth from home through conviction be one who puts an end to suffering and stress Dukkha. cultivate admirable friends and an isolated dwelling secluded with next to no noise no moderation in eating robe <clears throat> alms food requisites requisites means medicine and dwellings don't create don't create craving for these don't be one who returns to the world restrained in the patimoka the discipline and the five faculties five senses have mindfulness immersed in the body <clears throat> be one who's cultivated disenchantment avoid the theme of beauty connected with passion develop the mind in the unattractive the foul gathered into one well-centered develop the themeless give up obsession with conceit then having from having broken through conceit eighth fetter you will go about stilled in this way the blessed one often instructed venerable Rahula with these verses <clears throat> and so uh, Gautama instructed his son Rahula uh, frequently with this Rahula Sutta and the Ambalatika which seems to have been Rahulavada given at age 7 and the Maha Rahulavada given at age 18 or something like that um, <clears throat> so they, they feed into this and this sutta really shows the whole path too as uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi explained and so first we have the value, the, the importance of respecting a true helper uh, the one who holds up a torch for us to learn from then the importance of uh, some de detachment from uh, sensuality or bodily process right over uh, letting not not letting the mind um, fall into um, obsession or avoidance uh, denial nor uh, grasping an aversion after we encounter the pleasant and the unpleasant uh, put an end to suffering and stress is the end of the path and uh, cultivate friends certainly <laughs> if one if one doesn't have to if there's no value again if it's if the relationship isn't helpful to you and it's not helpful to me <clears throat> I can't see much value to keeping it no moderation don't create craving don't return to the world um, and then mindfulness in the body as much as possible slow down and be aware of where you are <laughs> don't go speedily along and uh, don't get stuck in uh, hungering thirsting for the beautiful 
although the beauty has, the beautiful it really is lovely it is of higher dimensions develop the mind and and again you got to do what you will right i mean i don't follow all buddhist teachings because uh i find some value in some distortions i think that's the case for all of us we still find value maintaining certain distortions but i would think that hopefully they are at the level of negative one, negative two, not negative three. <laughs> On the moral seven-point scale with zero in the middle, uh, I think it's reasonable to persist with um, thought, word, and deed that we might uh, honestly assess as a negative one, negative two, uh, not hurting me or you too much. Certainly not hurting you too much, but certainly m more so not hurting you in some ways is more important than not hurting me <laughs> I can hurt me and live with it but if I hurt you there's a heavier karmic burden and um, longer pain for me but certainly uh, one should know the difference between negative one negative two and negative three or um, extremely harmful versus moderately or mildly and um, what's negative one or very mildly harmful it, or just wasting time, right? Maybe that's a harmful. How harmful is wasting three hours? Well, if you don't do it all the time, it's really not a problem. But it would be classed as a negative one, that kind of thing. So you got, everybody's got to live their own uh, unique integration of um, these teachings, obviously. But um, the Buddhist is very much about uh, cut attachment, cut desire, and the roots of suffering and the roots of rebirth. Develop the mind into the unattractive, gathered into one, well-centered, centered in the present moment in equanimity, um, with uh, mindfulness and attentiveness being here now. Give up obsession with conceit. <laughs> very uh, good advice to uh, lots of overthinking folks today. And then finally, eighth fetter broke through conceit. You'll go about stilled, <clears throat> and uh, deep stilling is critical. And the more, the longer one sits in meditation, the more meditation one does, the more one knows what stillness is. Um, the more the mind becomes quite clear and capable of knowing, of making such moral evaluation before, during, and after thought, word, and deed. <laughs> before and during and after thought, word, and deed, to what degree does it seem to be beneficial or harmful, very much moderately or mildly beneficial or harmful to you or me or both. <laughs> so Buddhism is tough. This is a tough doctrine. And um, <clears throat> that that's why um, the the real Buddhist sage, the, the Arhan, the third stage awakened non-returner these guys are really heroes they're really great beings i mean jai 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 so <clears throat> i mean victory they're really great <laughs> if you ever seen beings like this they're really great and you can see it i mean to me um two guys that are not even considered top of the line uh, uh john lee damadaro and weibu sayadaw from burma i mean they're beautiful souls they're great heroes victors um really something <laughs> because they've trained themselves profoundly and um they are a purified crystal <laughs> welcome to ruby land mongkok in burma welcome to ruby land 
sixth and seventh density, Arupa Jana, Arupa Loka, and the Arupa Janas. <clears throat> That's where you'll find Ruby Land and the beings of uh, endless ruby, sapphire, diamond, emerald, uh, crystal, and radiance, um, who've done the heavy self purification. So, <laughs> with that esoteric uh, twist, <clears throat> that'll be it for today. Next time, uh, continuing in Sutta Nipata, the endless, <laughs> the endless uh, small suttas, we'll go to uh, Sutta Nipata 2.12, Vangisa, Vangisa, uh, Venerable Vangisa, 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 the foremost poet among the Buddha's disciple, meaning the different categories of foremost disciple, he was foremost among the poets, among the disciples for poetry. Praises the Buddha in verse. And that's nice. And um, two more after that, and we'll finish the second chapter. And um, uh, I hope this was useful to you, wherever you may be. And please take good care of yourselves in this very uh, turbulent human collective. Uh, please see through lies and find truth. And be good to yourself and the people around you. And um, take good care as always. Okay, good night.